Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. I'm tempted to wait till Nathan Daniels walks back in the building. I got up to preach, he left. That's what happens. All that means is that he's willing to do what most people are thinking, so <laughs> it's important. Anyway, today we're going to talk about prayer effectiveness and how sin plays a part in that, or at least what uh, James says in his concluding chapter about sin. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to James chapter 5, starting at verse 13, and we'll go through verse 20. These are the words of God. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Verses 16. Uh, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Verses 17 and 18 go on. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And finally, 19 and 20, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So up to this point, we have, uh, we've learned a lot in the book of James, and I encourage you to go back through any of those sermons, any of this series, to kind of get a, a closer, you know, kind of, instead of a forest view, a, a tree-level view of each chapter and the verses that we dealt with. Um, but in chapter 5, we have to remember that we're dealing with a specific context, and I want you to see that all of chapter 5, in fact, does flow together. There's a lot of conflicting opinions on this with regard to scholarship, but uh, I want you to see that all of this seems to flow together, and the general theme of chapter 5 that James is, is getting to is that when we're in times of trouble, whether it's, uh, whether it's persecution, affliction, uh, whether it's sin, whether it's health issues, our ability objective is to run to God. Amen? Our objective or our call is to run to God. Now that's the simple version of it and we're going to explore the more detailed version of this as we go. But what we learned in the context of this chapter is that verses 1 through 6 teach us that uh, there are rich oppressors that are afflicting the Christians lives and God just really lays it out to them. He says, Y'all gonna die, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. It's a real beautiful Christian message, right? But it is a beautiful Christian message in that we have a God who is just, amen? So in verses 1 through 6, we've got a God who is going to take aim at rich oppressors. Then in verses 7 through 20, God turns his attention through James the writer, turns his attention to his people, who James refers to repeatedly as brethren, 
he uh, turns his attention to the brethren and he begins to teach them important uh, principles of running to him no matter what's going on. So uh, when the rich oppressors are afflicting them, what are they supposed to be? What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to be and, uh, and practice patience. They're supposed to stand firm in their faith. They're not supposed to quarrel or grumble with each other. Instead, they're just supposed to trust in God. They're supposed to run to Him. And today, of course, we're going to look at the, uh, the part that prayer plays in this, the part that sin can play in this, and then, of course, the part of effective prayer. Along the lines of chapter 5, I introduced to you guys uh, an idea that I want you to keep utilizing, I want you to keep employing this when you're reading the Bible, and that is the, uh, the importance of asking the question, is the interpretation I am giving to this text possible, because the truth is almost every interpretation out there is possible, or is this interpretation possible? plausible? Is it actually the most likely interpretation for this particular passage? Again, as I shared last week, you could read John 3.16 and you could see God so loved the world and you could understand that there is a possible interpretation that some come to that God loves all kinds of people in the world. That's not a very plausible explanation due to the fact that the scripture goes on to say God wants that none should perish. He doesn't want that none kinds of people should perish. He wants that none should perish. He wants all to come to everlasting life. Amen. So we have a possible interpretation and then we're dealing with a probable interpretation of the scripture. So this morning we're going to weigh that again and I'm going to kind of be geeky and jump into those places as we get there. There's three major sections that I've divided this, uh, this last section into and they are as follows. Number one, a call to prayer. We're supposed to be a praying people. That's verses 13 through 16. Number two, the effective, effectiveness of prayer. That's verses 17 and 18. And then finally, um, the, the wanderer or where sin plays a part inside of all of this and what we're supposed to do about it. That's verses 19 and 20. So let's deal with a call to prayer. Verse 13 again says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Say that word with me, suffering. Uh, then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Now this word suffering here is um, the same word uh, as the word trouble. It's the same exact Greek word that's used in verse 10, uh, speaking of the prophets. They endured a lot of trouble. They endured a lot of suffering. So in this situation, make sure you read it properly. In this situation, we're not talking about sickness. We're not talking about disease. We're actually talking about affliction, the same kind of affliction that the prophets would have gone through in this, right? Uh, so we see this in verse 10. And what was the call for the prophets in verse 10? Or what was, what was so exemplary about their lives that we should follow according to verse 10? It was their patience, right? So in regard to suffering, the, the prophets employed patience. They trusted God. They didn't look to the immediate reality of their life. They waited and they were willing to even wait till the return of God for their uh, for their writing or for the writing of all the wrongs in their life, okay? So they employed patience. But now we're given an instruction in verse 13 that says, if you are suffering, if you're in trouble, what should you do? 
You should pray about it. Do you think the prophets prayed? You better bet your bottom dollar they prayed, right? So they were praying. We should be praying. Here's the question that I have for you. Getting really practical. When you endure suffering, when you endure trouble in your life, is your go-to prayer or is your go-to complaining? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with everybody else because they already see the answer on Facebook, <laughs> right? Right? We know that everybody's, everybody's go-to seems naturally to complain, to, to grumble about things. Didn't, didn't James tell the Christians, the brethren, not to grumble against one another? You should also just not grumble, period. It's not going to get you anywhere. You do realize all you end up doing is digging the pit deeper, and you get into that muck, and you get into that mire, and then you never get out. You just become that negative Nelly, that, that uh, person nobody wants to be around, right? So instead of the complaining, what we ought to do is we ought to be a people of prayer. Now, it seems plausible, it also seems possible, but it seems plausible, most likely, that the prayer focus here is to pray for patience, right? The prophets seem to have prayed for patience, and I think that's what we need to do. How many of you know that when you're facing trial, you're not, like, your first thing, you go to grumbling, you go to complaining, which is a sign, how many of you know that that's a sign you're not actually living in patience, right? You're not living in patience. You're grumbling, you're complaining. You know, if you can't worry, if you can't, uh, yeah, if you can't worry yourself into another year of life, if you can't worry a white hair on your head back to black, <laughs> right? If you can't do that, you also can't grumble your way or hair, period, for Mark Ryan, senior sake, right? Um, you, uh, he's the one who pointed it out. I'm just going with his cues here, guys. So if you can't worry yourself back into this, you sure can't grumble yourself back into it. So what you ought to do is you ought to pray and trust God that he will give you patience in the time that you need. So when we're facing oppression, the call for the Christian, according to James 5, is what? Be patient, verse 7. Strengthen our hearts, verse 8. Don't complain, verse 9. Don't swear, and we understand the right understanding of swearing there. Don't, uh, don't swear by God. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Instead, what you ought to do is pray. And I would conclude that prayer will help with every one of those things. You should pray for patience. You should pray that God would help strengthen your heart. You should pray when you feel the urge to complain. And you should pray when it comes to your yes and your no. Lord, help me be a man or a woman of my word. Amen? So this is really important. The next thing that's important about verse 13 is that final line of verse 13. He says, is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. It is true that everybody who walks the Christian life will face or endure some sort of persecution. But make sure you hear me. Everybody will not, not, not everybody faces persecution equally. Okay? You might, you might face persecution in the way that maybe somebody in your life goes, you're one of those fuddy-duddies who believes in Jesus. That might be your persecution. You, don't put that on the same playing field as the person who has lost their family because they wouldn't deny Jesus, right? 
Don't do that. But don't miss the idea that you're still enduring through persecution. So the, the Christian life is made up of a, a, of a wide range of experiences. And inside those experiences, if you're facing trial and trouble, you should be praying for patience. But if you're going through a good time, don't pretend you're not. Ain't nobody needs another negative person. What you need to do is sing, praise, worship God. The Apostle Paul models both of these when we look at his story in the Scripture. On one instance, he's crying out to God to take a thorn in the flesh from him, which I conclude is the tribulation and trial he faced at the hands of his enemies, the persecution he endured. But he also sings while he's in prison. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it, right? Start a choir while we're all being abused. But the point is, if you're cheerful, you should sing. And what is amazing in the Christian life is that you can be cheerful in the midst of times of suck. (laughs) You can be, right? Because God will remind you in those times, I've got you. I've got you. Uh, don't worry about it. I won't let you fall. I won't let you falter. So are you cheerful? Then sing. So on a Sunday morning, I'm going to help Adam out a little bit here. Just kind of give you some, uh, give you some uh, cheerleading here. If you come in on a morning and you're happy, sing with everything you got. Even if you're Dave McCarthy, right? I mean, sing with absolutely everything you've got right? If you are cheerful, do it. Because what's amazing about that is that people see that. They see how God is working good things in people's lives. And what do they want to do? They want to be a part of that. They want to sing too. However, if you come in and you've had a hard week, persecution, trial, tribulation, whatever it is, it's okay. Don't come into church grumbling and complaining. Come into church to pray. It's an amazing place to pray, actually, right? It's kind of like it was built for it, okay? So, so this is a really important concept that we need to understand. Okay, so verse 14, we've, we see prayer is a call, but verse 14 goes on and says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. Okay, let's go to school for a little bit, Okay. This is a big deal, and it causes a lot of contention, a lot of issues. We're asking the question, as we always do, not what is possible, but what is plausible, okay? So let's first deal with the fact that uh, if you are sick, God is taking into consideration your, through James, he's taking into consideration that your health is ailing, your health is failing, there's something going on. How many of you know Christians get sick? (laughs) Exactly. Okay? Christians get sick. If you are sick, you're supposed to do a couple of things. Okay? But the case I'm going to make here is that not any one of these things, except for prayer, except for prayer, is the absolute non-negotiable. Okay? You just got to hear me out. Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9, Acts chapter 20 verses 17 and 28, and 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 4 communicate something very important uh, for the church at large. And that is the qualifications and the responsibilities of who? The elder. The elder. It's a term that simply means an overseer. Now, I was talking to Steph this week, and we were talking about different concepts of why the Bible would tell us to go to the elder. Why wouldn't the Bible just say, go to a doctor? Why wouldn't, 
why wouldn't it just do those things? Well, here's what you have to understand. Number one, their world didn't operate like ours did. You didn't text to get a teleconference with your doctor, right, back in this day and say, hey, I just need to find out what's going on with me. I'll show you my symptoms. You fix it. Even up to 150 years ago, church, listen to me, even up to 150 years ago, doctors did not operate like doctors operate now. Doctors today, they look at a chart, they look at information, they get the latest uh, journal that's sent to them that says, here's the medication that's working and should be prescribed should be prescribed, and they just go ahead and write this stuff out, okay? And then half the doctors get kickbacks for certain things, and I'm on a hobby horse and mad about it. But it's okay, right? So they get on this hobby horse. Even 150 years ago, doctors were more like genuine scientists, okay? And here's what they did. They said, what's ailing you? And you said, well, I've got this rumble in my chest. I've got this cough. I've got this thing. And they're like, okay, let's try this. And what were they doing? They made a diagnosis, they made a hypothesis about what was going on, they employed some sort of uh, fix, some sort of treatment, and guess what? If it didn't work, what would a doctor do? They'd adjust, and they'd do something else, okay? It was very informal, it was very, uh, I suppose, more scientific than today, okay, in many ways. Forget 150 years ago, you got to go all the way back to here, there there were physicians, but not the way you think they are now, okay? So it's important for you to not read into these words our context. You're like, here's what they did. They showed up to the appointment. The doctor said, here you go. Here's your prescription. Go to Walmart. Didn't happen, okay? So instead, they went to people who had this kind of skill, this kind of gifting, this kind of call in their life that wanted to help others, and in the Christian community, this would seem that it would be the highest ranking person. And I'm not talking about highest as in there's, there's better people in the Christian life. But there are certain called people for a job. And that would be the elders. You have to go to the elders. You have to run to them. Listen, in ancient cultures, they would run to the shaman. In this time, they would run to these particular gurus of these things. And in the Christian community, there were not a lot of liked people among the Christian community. Okay, so this is a very small group, and so God says, you need to actually go to your elders. You need to go to the leaders. What are elders to do according to those qualifications I mentioned before? They're called to shepherd, aren't they? Do you know what a shepherd does for sheep? He doesn't just make sure they've got food and a place to poop. Okay? He makes sure that they're healthy. He makes sure that they're defended. He makes sure that they're protected. He is a doctor, a father, a, a, a guard, whatever it is, right? That's what an elder did. And so in this, what we seem to see is God saying, go to your leaders. The scripture is clear that when we're in times of trouble, we need to run to God, amen? But running to God doesn't mean we've got some sort of place where God's sitting necessarily. Sometimes we're running to God via his word. Sometimes we're running to God via his people. And sometimes we're running directly to him. And in this instance, it seems what has been said is you need to go to the elders who are going to shepherd the flock. They're going to care for your health. This seems to be a very plausible idea. Does this mean that there's no other way? We're about to see just a few verses from now that if you pray for one another, you'll be healed. And it doesn't have reference to the elders. 
So it, listen to me. It is not about this as some sort of strict, ridiculous rule, okay? It is about, in their context and in their time, you ran to those who were supposed to shepherd you or care for you, right? So it is clearly not the case that everybody had to go to an elder. The purpose, again, is that when you're in need, you turn to God, and sometimes that means you're turning to people. Okay, but what is the main verb here? What are we supposed to do? The elder is not the main focus. Prayer is the main focus. You should go to the elders of the church and they are to pray over you. And this bears out in the language. This is why it's important for you to study original languages. This is why it's important for you to dig a little bit deeper. The main verb here is actually to pray. The modifier of the verb or the participle, as we would say, is to anoint to anoint. This is simply a modifier. This is something you do while you pray, but it is not the main focus. Why does this matter? Listen. Number one, again, prayer is the thing that is effective and changes situations. Amen? It does not say later on, and I'm going to hit this again, it does not say the anointing is effective in your life. It does not say the elder is effective in your life. It says that prayer, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man is effective, okay? Or, or is, is useful in this, okay? So remember that. Prayer is the focus. Number two, it serves as one more proof, and this is where it's going to get sticky. I'll get some attention here. It serves as one more proof that anointing with oil was actually meant for medicine and not for sacrament. Please hear me out. Again, here's the issue. Is it a possible interpretation that anointing with oil is some sort of special spiritual experience and people get healed because of it? Sure, it's a possible interpretation. I would argue you're wrong. Is it possible it's a special spiritual thing to have an elder pray over you? I can prove that you're wrong on that one. These are possible interpretations, but they're not probable. And here's why they're not probable. Listen to what, listen to what we understand about this time, uh, this time frame. The Bible has to be understood within its own context. And so as we begin to read, we, begun, we begin to see a very different thought. So let's look at it. Oil, at this point, for the Jew and the Christian and the world at large, was understood as medicinal and not sacramental. Let's start with the word. Let's start with the word. This is where it really starts to hit home. The word used here for anoint is something like, and I'm no Greek person at all, um, elipsantes. Alepsantes, something like this, okay? I don't want you to even say it after me because if I'm saying it wrong, I'll just teach you to say it wrong, right? Alepsantes. This is not the term used in Greek for sacrament. That's the word used there, and it is not the word used for sacrament. The word that is used for sacrament is the Greek word shrio. By the way, shrio actually means anoint. The word alepsantes means to smear or to dab. That's it. There's no other way 
James knows what he's doing. He knows the words he's using. He's not playing a sacramental game here. He's actually working within the confines of his day. So, guess what? This is still a true interpretation in the modern Greek. They still make this distinction in these two terms. So now we have an understanding from a linguistic side. Now let's look at it inside of a historical context. It is a well-documented fact that oil was common or most commonly used as a medicinal, uh, a medicinal uh, instrument in biblical times. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 6. Isaiah 1 6 says this. Very cool. It'll be up on the screen. Isaiah 1 6. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is nothing sound in it. Okay there's a lot of context here but I want to show you something. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds not pressed out or bandaged. That's a way that we heal things, right? Nor softened with oil. There was this medical application that was given to this. Now let's look at Luke chapter 10. You're all familiar with the Good Samaritan story. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came up to him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Listen, if you're going to make these sacramental, you might want to add wine to it real quick. Okay? New Testament, this is the reality of what's going on. No, these are medicinal realities, okay? Oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Why didn't the Samaritan just heal him? Well, he's a Samaritan, Nathan. He's not a Christian. He's not been filled with the Holy Spirit. Ah, guess who else does this same exact thing for medicinal purposes? The Apostle Paul with Timothy. The Apostle Paul is known for doing such miraculous things. The Apostle Paul is being bit by snakes and he's not dying. It's an amazing reality. And guess what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy? Take a little wine for your stomach. You know what I want to do? Say, Paul, why aren't you praying for him? Paul, why don't you just heal him? Why don't you lay hands on him and take this away? Because we're reading the Bible wrong. We're reading the Bible wrong. There are certain ways and certain applications where this is just what the Bible talks about. And when we talk about oil, it's important to remember its medicinal use in this context. Not in what we ta where we're taught, not in what we want to read in the Bible, but in what it was actually used for. Nathan, what about Psalm 133? What about the anointing oil that flowed over Aaron's head onto his beard? Yes. It was an anointing before the Spirit of God is poured out on all people, right? It was an anointing for a priesthood. And guess who we are because the Spirit has been poured out on all of us? A royal priesthood. That is the anointing we underwent, okay? That is the anointing. But we have a medicinal quality here. Let's take Josephus, for example. In Antiquity 17:172, he reports that Herod the Great took an entire bath in oil, as his hopeful cure. So, medicinal in that time. Philo, Pliny, and Galen the physician all refer to the medical nature of oil. Galen said that it was the best of all cures for paralysis. Okay, how many of you want to try that? When your knees or your joints are aching, you're just going to jump into a bath of oil. I, I'm not suggesting you do this. I'm telling you what they thought. 
I'm telling you what they saw in their world, what they believed. So here's what we have to understand. Number one, why is this, a, why is this the most plausible explanation or why is this a more plausible explanation? One, the word is not sacramental. It is medicinal. Number two, it was used medicinally and it's proven over and over and over. Number three, remember, these are Christians. They already have the Spirit of God. They don't need that again. There's no physical representation of what was already true for them. So what does verse 14 say again? Let's go back to it. Put it on the screen, please. So it says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil. Remember, this is the participle. This is not the most important thing, and you're going to love me if you have a Pentecostal or charismatic upbringing. You're going to love that that's the case here in a second. You're going to love that that's the defense here in a second, because we're also not praising and worshiping at the feet of elders. It's really important. It is prayer that is effective, church. It is prayer. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. So the importance comes to this. The importance comes back to prayer, which is God's calling uh, for us and us calling upon God. Soapbox for a second. I have said this so many times, and I'm going to keep harping on it until people get it or maybe until I get some patience and suck it up. I, want, I would love for the church to stop saying I believe in the power of prayer. Not because prayer is not powerful, but because over time what we've made it to mean is that just the act itself is what is powerful. Do you know what makes prayer powerful? The God behind it, okay? The God behind it. Because I'm telling you right now, the Muslims pray a lot. I guess prayer is powerful. It's not. And in our world, we've blended prayer with a lot of other things. Uh, positive vibes, right? Warm feelings. Here's when I want your positive vibes. When I am under stress, I want you to remain positive so I don't just become Debbie Downer constantly, okay? I want you to be positive. Your positive vibes ain't changing my circumstances, though. Did you know that? Right? And you're praying to any other God besides the God who actually works isn't changing my circumstances, is it? Please understand this. There's power in prayer if there's a God of power behind it. Right? Right? Otherwise, it's a joke. And we just make each other feel better as some sort of, I don't know, placebo effect or something. Because we're praying for each other. That's not how this works. So, the importance comes back to prayer, and the trust placed in God, that is, to do it in faith, not, not in the participle of medicine, not in the additive of medicine. Your faith is not in the elder, and your faith is not in some version of anointing that you have read wrong. The truth is in the power of the God who is there. So... What is a plausible interpretation? And I know that this will frustrate. It's okay. I think a plausible interpretation of this is pray and take your daggone medicine. 
Nathan, 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 Nathan. This whole life is about trusting God, and you have just told people, I have not told anybody what you think I've told them. There are three options here. You can take medicine and trust God. You can take medicine and not trust God. And you can trust God and not take medicine. Right? Isn't that true? But here's where it gets really practical. I have experienced in my life people who have died because they were so freaking stubborn they wouldn't take medicine because somehow they weren't trusting God. Well, if you'd read James right, I think you'd see a different understanding of it. If you understood a context, you'd understand something very, very different. What we have to know is that you can also run to an elder and pray to God. Did the elder heal you? No. Participle. Make sure you understand it's not the most important piece in the line. The most important piece is the, is the verb. That is, you are praying And you are praying to someone. You take your medicine and you pray, trust God for the outcome. You don't take your medicine and you pray, trust God for the outcome. Right? I'm good with either one. There is no need for us to constantly fight over this kind of thing. But if you're just going to jump on board with doctors and medicine and all that stuff, but never trust God, it's just one area that you need to look back to your father. Amen? It's one more area. Where do we go first when we're in times of trouble? Grumbling and complaining. What should we do? Pray. Where are we at when things hurt in our life? The pill. Where should we go? We should go to our Lord. But if you have a headache, take a daggone pill. It's okay. But run to the Lord. Run to Him. Trust Him in that time. See, there's a lot of practical importance to a right interpretation. A plausible interpretation. I'm 100% open to having this discussion with you if you disagree. But listen to me. If we read it based on their context, we come away with something that seems very, very different. So, plausible interpretation. Trust God. Take your medicine. (laughs) I love it. Anyway, I'm just being goofy. Okay, next, next verse is verse 16. What's verse 16 say? Look at it. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective anointing of a righteous man can accomplish much. Nope. The effective work of a righteous man can accomplish much. Nope. The effective prayer. Remember, that's the main focus of this entire section. It is prayer that matters in this because we have a God who answers prayer behind it. So confess Pray for one another, and then look at the effective prayer. Here's a couple of points that I want you to see uh, about this. There is forgiveness of sins when we pray for this, and it's connected to sickness and disease. Before before anybody teaches you a wrong idea, understand this. Uh, Sin can cause sickness. Sin can cause sickness. Nathan, no, 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 no. If you do that, it's going to create all kinds of problems for people. Sin can cause sickness, but not all sickness is caused because of sin. Just remember both, right? Remember, this is yet again a both-and situation. In John chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus instructs a lame man that he healed. He says, go and sin no more. Don't continue to sin. Otherwise, something worse will happen to you. Sin can cause sickness, 
But not all sickness is caused by sin. John 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 is, uh, is again, this opportunity where you say, uh, well, whose who's sin caused this particular sickness? It was a blind man. Jesus healed. And he says, nobody's sin caused his sickness. It was just done so that I might receive glory in this moment. Because why was Jesus walking around healing people the way he was? A lot of reasons, quite honestly. The kingdom of God is, is being uh, inaugurated, it's being brought in. But the main focus that we see in Scripture is so that he and his claims are backed up. He claimed to be the son of God, people, right? He claims to be Messiah. You're going to need something to back that up, <laughs> right? You ain't walking in going, God's gift to humanity. Everybody's like, right, <laughs> we've heard that one before, right? No, really, here. Be healed. Your sins are forgiven, right? All of these different things. So, verse 16, confess, pray for one another the effective prayer of a righteous man. Therefore, we are supposed to confess and we're supposed to pray. Those are really important. And, uh, and when we do this, there is a righteousness or there is a focus that will accomplish much. Make sure you read that again. It will accomplish much. It does not say that the, that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes all things. It doesn't. God has a will and God does things his way uh, when he chooses. So here's a couple observations. Number one, prayer is powerful and it is effective, but again, because there's a God who answers prayer in the background. Number two, the righteous man in this context is one who has confessed their sins, his or her sins. So the righteous person is one who confesses his or her sins. This does not go back to the elders. So guess what? Just like anointing is a participle and not the main focus, going to the elders was just because they were your shepherds, you ran to them. But guess what? The righteous prayer of anyone that is one who confesses, is effective. Do you have to run to me? No, oh, you do not. Do you have to run to Mark or Barney? Do you have to run to anybody in the church? No. Can you? Should you? Could it help you in other ways? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm not your doctor. They've held that role in certain ways. I would recommend you go to a doctor. But if you want prayer, come to me. Come to me. Let's pray. Let's focus on these particular things. So it doesn't go back to the elder in this context. It is every one of us. If we will confess our sins, guess what becomes effective? Our prayer. Our prayer becomes effective. Because God came to save us from death, but he also came to save us to righteousness. Amen? He came to save us from sin and death and to life and righteousness. And so we need to get that right. Okay, effectiveness of prayer, verses 17 and 18. And I'll wrap this up really quickly. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed, say it with me, church, earnestly. How many of you are awesome at that? Yeah, it's like half of one person on the front row. It's amazing. Emmy's like Tuesdays. Anyway, okay, so, right, he prayed earnestly. That's my problem too, right? So he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then, what did he do again? He prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. What's that comparison there for? everything that James just told us to do. Are you sick? Pray about it. Are you being persecuted? Run to the Father. Are you having a good day? Rejoice in Him. 
It's all back to God over and over and over and over, right? And so in this situation, you should be like Elijah. And before you panic and think, you know who we're talking about here, right? We're like fire from heaven, right? Prophets of Baal all being destroyed. He had a nature just like yours. He had a nature just like mine. He probably had impatience just like yours. And he probably had a desire to not be as um, uh, consistent with his prayer as we are. Okay? But what did he do? He prayed earnestly. Now, let's put that passage back up on the screen real quick. And let me just explore something with you. When it says earnestly, I hope you understand something. That does not mean to say that he repeatedly prayed. Should you be persistent in your prayer? Mm-hmm. Yes, you should. Right? But the way 1 Kings 17 and 18 lay this out, what they imply seems to be that Elijah, he just prayed once and it stopped. <laughs> right? That's fantastic. And then in, verse eight, or in chapter 18, it seems he huddles down in this, oh my goodness, everything's going to hit the fan moment. And he prays and it changes. Changes. Are there rain clouds coming? Are there rain clouds coming? Yep, they're coming. Okay, he seems to pray earnestly does not necessarily mean a lot. It means for real. Are you praying for real? This is why James says, listen, if you don't believe it's going to happen, don't pray. Because you're just a double minded man. You, you, whatever. But listen, if you're convinced, if you know that God is a God who answers prayer, if you're the person who says, I believe in the power of prayer then you better pray earnestly, like it's going to move some mountains, church. Right? Because who do you believe in? Don't you believe in the same God of Elijah? And don't you have the same nature as him? He prayed earnestly. You should pray earnestly. We should all ask for the rain to stop when I want it to stop. I'm just letting you know that. So I'll send you a text message. Say, pray now. Anyway, okay. So pray earnestly. It just means pray for real, church. Pray for real, that, you, that it would not rain. And then he prayed again, and boom, it happened. So the call is prayer. That's the main focus. How are we supposed to pray? For real. Pray earnestly, church. And then last but not least, verses 19 and 20, this whole passage about the wanderer and about sin. My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I've already told you that sin can cause sickness. I've already told you that not all sickness is a result of sin. But I am telling you to have effective prayer. God tells us to confess, okay? But God doesn't just tell us to confess. He says, go after each other. Go after each other. Hunt down your brother. Hunt down your sister and say, come back. Come back. Come back. Turn around. Now, look at this. Verses 1 through 6, I told you, were about oppressive rich people. Okay? Oppressors. But who is this about? Who? Us. The church, right? The brethren. This is about God's people. And notice what it says. My brethren, if any among you... From what? And one turns him back. That is one leads him to repentance. Amen? The church can stray from the truth. 
Please stop believing stupid lies that say, once you said yes to Jesus, there is no way for you to ever screw this up. There's no way for you to ever, you cannot trust him. You can say, I refuse to trust you, Lord. You can say, I don't want to do it your way, Lord. This once saved, always saved business creates very serious problems. It creates contradictions in the Bible where God says, I want you to hold fast and stand firm to the end and then you'll be saved. And we're like, no, I said a prayer one time. I'm good. I'm good. No. And then even worse, when our brother or sister comes and says, I want to turn you from your unrighteousness, we go, huh, I'm saved. Back up off me now. No, 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 no. I I need help. Who's going to join me in that declaration? I need help. Okay, let's all do it like a recovery group. One, two, three. I need help. Okay, it just sounded great coming from you guys, right? So, Christians can stray from the truth, but the one who turns him back, let him know that he he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul. Guess what saints are also referred to as? Sinners. When you do it. This is not your identity, church, but it sure is what your actions are at times. And when you're doing it, we call a football player a football player, don't we? Because he plays football. (laughs) We call a sinner a sinner because he plays sin, (laughs) right? That's what we're doing. So you turn them back from the error of his way and you'll save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. A multitude of sins. Because what you're doing by rescuing is you're teaching them that effective prayer comes when you turn people back, right? The book of James is a fascinating book. It's extraordinarily practical. It helps us with a great many things. But if I was to pick a theme that the whole book of James communicates, that theme would be that James says, in everything you do, run back to the Father. If it's faith and trust in God, then show it by your actions. In other words, run the way he says to run. Run back to him, his ways. When it comes to prayer, who are you running to? Not positive vibes and not any other God. You're running to the God who actually answers prayer. When it comes to your issues in life, what should you do? Even if you take medicine, trust the Lord. Amen? It's okay, but trust the Lord. All of this comes back to James going, hey, do you know my father? Do you know our father? You should trust him. When life has presented you with utter hell by persecution and and trial, trust the father. When you're sick, trust the father. When you're frustrated, trust the father. When you're happy, trust the father and sing to him, right? This is James as a whole. James gets viewed as this kind of negative book because James punches you in the nose when he wants to tell you you're wrong. I like James. I like punching people in the nose. But James punches you in the nose with a velvet glove, (laughs) right? Because he is wanting you to know that he loves you deeply. And he wants you to know that God loves you deeply. So I hope the series has been effective. I hope it has been good for you and you've learned some things. But I also, again, come back to this issue. I hope that you have learned how to study something. And I hope you're willing to challenge things. Because it doesn't bother me. Challenge me. Argue with me. Whatever you want to do. I mean, expect argument in return. (laughs) Anyway, um, so anyway, you guys are like, oh, I get to argue at him? No, you get to argue with me. Okay, so argue with me. I want you to do that. That's a beautiful thing. But I hope that you have grown. I hope you've learned how to do this.